Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today is executive art director Mike Pekovich. Good morning, Ed. And nobody else, because Matt's on the road and Ace is on the road, and we're all alone. Um, but luckily, we got good comments about being alone recently. Oh, really? Yeah, because some a couple people said, oh, well, Mike gets to ruminate on all sorts of <laughs> topics for much longer than normal when nobody else is interrupting him. So That was neither my wife nor my kids calling in with that comment. <laughs> I guarantee that. Well, anyhow... I think, um, I think it was yeah. Matt. I'm sure it was Matt or Matt's mom. Yes. Uh, if you like this podcast, be sure to spread the word to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page, leave a comment, maybe a sweet five-star rating if you think we merit it. You can also catch us over at iHeartRadio. Now, a um, couple of things to get off my chest before we proceed. All right. Um, I had an interesting uh, visit to Charlotte, North Carolina on Tuesday and, uh, what was it, Tuesday and Wednesday I was in Charlotte at the DeWalt Manufacturing Facility. Oh, cool. And um, Were they just, what, rolling out new tools, that kind of I stuff? I went down to see what kind of new tools they had and uh, in the works, and um, I, I got in on this factory tour, and which was kind of interesting because I've never actually, I've, not, I've never gone into a factory, be it for tools or anything else. Okay. Um, so they actually make tools there. I just assume nothing was made in the U.S. anymore. They do. Uh, so their big marketing push, and I should be clear, it's a, and I should be clear on a couple of things. First of all, um, a bunch of people from the uh, tool-related media mm-hmm. were invited by DeWalt. Um, they purchased our flight, and they put us up for a night. So full disclosure, um, got to be honest. Nice. Yeah, it was nice. But... Um, so this is a big, it's, you know, it, it's marketing for them. So I want to be careful that people understand that. And then I'm, I'm going to only give you the unvarnished truth about okay. anything I say here. So this is not a paid ad. It's more like a kickback. It, what, it, it, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I did get to take this factory tour, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their big marketing push right now is that they are manu- they're trying to manufacture more tools in the United States. Um, the caveat is they, they say, you know, it's made in the USA with globally sourced parts. Okay. So some of those parts are made at facilities in the U.S. Like I know some of their powdered metal gears and things are made in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Other parts are being made overseas and then they're brought here into the United States and they're assembled right. at this plant in um, Charlotte and another one in Indiana. Okay. But anyhow, that's neither here nor there. Um, I found it fascinating because I actually, I expected to see a lot more... Um, Automation, like I expected to see these big, like five million dollar machines with arm, robotic sure. arms, putting screws in everywhere, making espresso for you. It, absolutely, yeah. And instead, what I found was, um, it's it's mostly people doing all the work. Um, they do have these really cool tools, however, that I really I really want to get one of these. <laughs> so each station, let's say you're screwing together a drill body. Okay. You've got a um, essentially what is sort of a just a, a cylinder. Um, with a little star drive on the end of it, okay. and it hangs on a cord, and it's it's got a, a wire inside that's you know making the the bit turn. Okay, and so you you have your the drill you're assembling, and you grab this little cylinder, you bring it down, you bring the bit into place, and all you do is press down, uh-huh. and then the thing engages, and it starts spinning the you know it starts putting the uh, the screw into place, and okay. then it it stops once it reaches a predefined torque. Yep. which is really neat. And it means that these, you know, you watch these guys assemble this stuff, and it's... And if you let go, it just hangs from the ceiling? It just hangs, yeah. It was just interesting. And so I I did not see all these machines doing everything. It was actually people. Um, And I guess that makes 
a certain amount of sense because there's a certain amount of dexterity I guess you need to maneuver different screws and I can't imagine the kind of machine you would have to build to do that right. automatically. They had this other machine that is um, that winds all the copper wire around the motors. Wow. Which was interesting. I mean, they go through a lot of copper, but it's just all day long they're feeding this string. It's like piano wire into this machine and all it does is 24 hours a day, it's wow. winding motors. It was it was pretty fascinating, um, so we'll see. Um, you know, I'll I'll be talking to Mr. McKenna, our esteemed editor, about a couple of things to bring in to test and cool. And uh, but uh, yeah, so that's where I was. Well, that whole factory thing it reminds me of um, my son just got his first job ever. He's a produce clerk at the local stop and shop grocery store, and his main job is to be in back. Um, quartering and having watermelons and shucking corn and then Ooh, yeah. and putting them in that little cardboard tray with a little shrink wrap around them. Yeah. And it made me think like, wow, I never thought that someone actually did that stuff. I just thought maybe there's like a giant corn Machine. shucking factory or yeah. a giant watermelon having and quartering factory. Nope. It's like some dude in the back. It's um, your kid. With an apron <laughs> and, a, and a stop and shop hat. And he has like a cool, you know, like when people like go in shark cages and stuff, they have that, that chain mail armor that they wear. They wear those in gloves? My son has like a chain mail watermelon slicing glove. That is his, awesome. His Michael Jackson glove. It's pretty cool. So, so, Mike, you're a big fan of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Do you find yourself at night when he's asleep stealing away with the glove to pretend that you're fighting <laughs> at the gates of Mordor? With my mithril glove. That's right. With your chainmail glove yes. and a fake sword that you made in your shop. Maybe. <laughs> uh, until you get caught. Um, but anyhow, so that, that's where I was Tuesday and, uh, and cool. Wednesday. It was interesting. And, and we'll see um, you know, what new tools we bring in to nice. put through their paces. Um, uh, so uh, before that, uh, before we get on to the show, we have a word from our sponsor. Yes. Sponsor. We have a sponsor. We have a commercial. We have a commercial. This, and this is awesome. Is, this is good news because what our goal with the podcast is to keep it free and available to everybody, not yep. behind a paywall. So the way we do that, um, because I, I knew this was going to be sort of like a, whoa, they have a sponsor. What's going on here? Um, it, the way we keep this free is by bringing sponsors in. Um, and so we have our first sponsor. Well, actually, it's our second sponsor. We had a sponsor a long time ago. Um, but uh, we decided to bring in new sponsors. I'm sure everybody is really finding this interesting. But uh, so you're going to be hearing from um, various companies that are helping support the show from time to time. So yeah, and the main reason we've earned a sponsorship, someone actually wants to pay for us to mention their name on the air, is we've cracked the 40 listener barrier. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Actually, it was 41 listeners, <laughs> yes. Mike. But uh, anyhow, so uh, it's time for a word from our sponsor, who's Minwax. For more than 100 years, Minwax has been the leading brand of high quality wood finishing and wood care products. From wood stains to clear protective finishes, plus solutions for wood preparation, maintenance, cleaning, and repair, Minwax products are requested by the do-it-yourself consumer, seasoned woodworkers, and professional contractors. You can find Minwax online at minwax.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Thank you, Minwax. So uh, let's... Very nice. Good job. Thank you, sir. Nice. Uh, So let's get on with this dog and pony show. We've got our first question of the week. It comes from Greg, who writes, I have a concept in mind to build a nice coffee table inspired by Mike Pekovich's single board side table. My right. question is whether his example of creating a piece out of one eight-quarter board can be extrapolated into the use of a thicker board. I would like, so before I go on with this question, yes. he's referring to a, uh, an article as well as a video workshop series 
on where you built this. Uh, it was one of our most recent series where you built a cherry uh, side table or nightstand with a little drawer, and all the parts were sourced from a single board. This is correct. Okay, so that's what we're talking about here. So he says, I would like the coffee table to have thicker legs, two and a half plus inches. So I was thinking of using a 12-quarter cherry board, but have been warned that resawing a piece that thick can warp significantly following resawing due to the release of the stress in the piece. I'm wondering what Mike's thoughts on this would be. Perhaps this would make a good question for him to address on Shop Talk Podcast Blog, um, which we're doing right now, Greg. Uh, (laughs) So what are the implications, the ramifications of trying to get all those pieces, legs, these big thick legs out of a 12-quarter board, three-inch whopper? Yeah, I mean, assuming that you're not working with air-dried stock, which has very little tension, um, big old thick lumber like that, even eight-quarter, you're you're sort of, um, it, there's a lot of stresses created when that is dried in a kiln. Um, and you sort of release or change those, the equilibrium of those stresses when you resod into thinner boards. And really, you get, the problem is the same whether it's 8 quarter or 12 quarter or 10 quarter. So once once you get over a certain thickness, um, even resawing 4 quarter stock yeah. can be you know, a nightmare in Wang. terms of cupping and yeah. twisting and that kind of stuff. So, no, you're going to have the same problems, um, not even any more of a problem, but you just still have to deal with it where if you're resawing that stock to get thinner boards, you know, it's, it's going to probably cup on you, so you probably want to flatten that. Leave it over thickness, flatten it once, let it do its thing for a couple of days, flatten it again. You may have to flatten it for a third time, usually, you know, a couple flattenings, let it rest a couple of days in between. Uh, each time is is pretty good. Okay. All right. Uh, so what's happening here when you resaw a board that has been kiln dried is uh, essentially the you've dried a lot of the taken a lot of the water out of the board, but you still have moisture in the inside of that board, right? And you're now releasing it into the app. You know what I mean? It's it's you you've got an imbalance. That's right. Basically. Yeah. Thicker piece of stock. Two things. One is just straight up moisture equilibrium differences, which is going to happen seasonally, no matter how that board is dry, just because, you know, you're going to, the moisture is going to migrate out of the surface of the board. Most of the moisture comes out of the ends of the board, and then the rest comes out of the surface, which means the middle of a thick board is probably going to be wetter or drier than the outside of the board, um, depending what season you're, you're slicing this. So that's the first thing. The second thing is what's called case hardening. And that's when you're taking a lot of moisture out of the board really quickly, like in a commercial kiln drying process. And if they do it too fast, you're really, even independent of the moisture content, you're you're introducing stresses in that board. But as long as that board stays basically roughly full thickness, like you take a four-quarter board, you joint one side, and you plane it down the opposite side, as long as you're not taking off a lot of material, that tension is still in equilibrium where it's going to stay pretty flat. The problem is when you bust it in half and all that tension gets released in funky ways. Yep. Um, I mean, I've seen that on the, you know, cutting stuff on the bandsaw. Sometimes it'll, um, you know, you'll, you'll quickly see as it passes through the blade, the wood beyond the blade is now going wang. Yes. It usually close. Most often it's going to close up beyond the blade which is exactly why I do all my breakdown of stock on the bandsaw, not on the table, the table saw. saw. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's another thing that a lot of people, myself included, when I first started building furniture, didn't quite understand that the table saw, um, you should be making 
light passes with it when you're ripping and whatnot. Like you want to do your rough ripping and whatnot mostly at the bandsaw and then save the lighter final, you know, bring things to final width at the table saw. Exactly. So the table saw you think of is basically it's like a final dimensioning tool. Right. You're not busting that. Here's another common mistake folks make. Let's say you're making a bunch of doors and you need a two-inch wide stock. So you get your mm. 12-inch wide board, you joint and plane it down so it's nice and square, but then you start ripping two-inch long yeah. strips off at the table saw, and all these things turn into bananas. Right. And then you end up with doors with a lot of twist and wind and don't stay flat. So the better thing to do is when your stock is still rough, hit that at the bandsaw, take it down into, say, two-and-a-half-inch width strips and then joint and plane and square up all that stock it seems like you're doubling or tripling or quadrupling the amount of of joining and flattening that you have to do but by breaking it down as close to final dimension as possible you're releasing all those tensions before you joint and plane and square it up which is a whole idea there you go all right uh next question comes from greg who writes i no it doesn't that's the one i just read pardon me the next question comes from andrew who writes, oh boy, this is, uh, I think Andrew's been taking notes from one of our other uh, podcast listeners who likes to write in Old English. Okay. Um, here we go. May you be blessed with harmonious sanctity in all of your wood-related endeavors. I write to you at the behest of seeking sound advice in a quandary in which I currently find myself. I'm designing, all right, so basically what he says is, hey guys, nice to speak to you. I'm writing because I have a problem. Uh this is your fault, Dean. I am exactly. I am designing a bookshelf out of roughly 12 inch wide, five quarter walnut, and would like to miter the joints where the uprights and top meet to achieve a continuous grain wrapped appearance. Cool. Having listened to Shop Talk Live for several years, I know that a simple miter joint will not provide adequate structural integrity. I have identified the rabbit miter, lock miter, and splined miter as possible solutions. Hmm. The lock miter would not be cut on the router table, but would be constructed using the table saw technique. Hmm. Please grace me with your infinite wisdom on the most practical and structurally sound solution for creating this joint. Um, okay. There you go. We were talking about this earlier. Um, yeah, and I think I agree with that. Where where Matt would argue on a little mitered box or something, there's no need to uh, reinforce that joint. On a bookcase, yeah, we got to do something to this miter joint here. Yeah. And you've done this before. So the not-so-big workbench that I did for a video series had two... Um, and that was sort of a, an amalgamation of a couple of different designs. And one of the big designs uh, I looked at when I came up with that design was, oh, what is his name who had done the... Launch Lining. Launch Lining yep. had done some nice uh, drawer boxes uh, in the open well underneath the bench top. Yep. And so I built um, these cubes, two cubes that hold drawers. They're mitered corners. And to reinforce them, I cut... Uh, spline grooves um, down along each miter, and then I cut some little splines out of quarter sawn white oak. I glued the whole cube together with, like, packing tape to hold it together temporarily, and okay. then I pounded in these sl splines with just a little bit of glue, um, and it's bomb-proof. Okay. I mean, it's not So, moving. and you cut the spline grooves after you miter it, you tilt your table saw blade 45 yeah. degrees and run your mitered edge up against the fence. Yeah. Groove. Done. Cool. Yeah, and it's totally bomb-proof. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good solution. Um, if you wanted to do a stopped groove where you didn't see that spline on the front, which I think is a nice decorative mm -hmm. detail if you want it, 
Um, I guess you could do it with a router. You could use yeah. a row of biscuits or some dominoes in there at 45 degree angle dominoes. if you want to go that route. Um, another way to do it is so you're talking about you know doing this before you glue everything up. You know, right. um, making room for this. The second thing you can do is just cut a straight up miter, glue the whole thing up, and then after the fact, make some cuts across that joint. This is a big bookcase. So normally with a little box, you do it at the table saw with this, this little cradle that holds it at 45 degrees. In this case, you probably want to do it, um, you could do it with a router in a straight bit. And you make a cradle for the router that, that supports it at 45 degrees across the joint. And you just route a straight little um, cut. I guess it would be a groove across that joint at 45 degrees. You glue in a little spline. That's going to be a nice decorative element. You could pull out a dovetail bit and stick that in your router, route Ooh. that across, and then you make sort of a wedge-shaped spline, Ooh. and it ends up, you know, when you see both faces at the same time, it ends up looking like a little butterfly key going I across like that. the joint or That's dovetail. That's cool. That's very nice. Awesome. Um, another thing you could do, if you just want that miter at that front corner, you can cut a straight-up dovetail joint at that joint, and just miter that front portion of it so the grain wraps, you know, across the the front edge, up miter and across, which is a really cool, cool joint. One more variation, which I just remembered when we were talking about this, Michael Fortune, who's an awesome designer and woodworker, he had a piece on the back cover where it was sort of a half dovetail. It was basically a mitered dovetail joint where I believe on the top of the case – um, as these two pieces come together, you see a row of dovetails, but they're mitered so that when you look at the side of the case, there's not those big square end grain blocks mm -hmm. from the through dovetail um, exposed. So basically he does that by – it's a combination. Basically it's a mitered dovetail joint. So um, a lot of variations there, and that's kind of the fun is, is kind of figure out what you want. And a lot of times figuring out how to strengthen the joint – um, is a neat way to add visual interest uh, to the piece itself. Right on. Yeah. All right. Lots to choose from. Uh, so on the last episode, yep. we ran part one of Matt Kenny's interview with uh, fine woodworking contributor uh, Chris Gochner. Uh, and Chris had talked about how he got started, uh, how he set up his shop, building a desk for the governor of Utah, um, kickbacks, uh, ab scam, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. Not really. Uh, well, the governor's desk is true, but the rest of it's baloney. Uh, so we actually have the balance of that lengthy interview, and um, Chris has some good advice for aspiring woodworkers and whatnot. So uh, I say we roll the tape. Here he is, fine woodworking contributing author, Chris Gochner. Uh, let's move on. Uh, next question. Um, what's the best advice you were given by another woodworker? Okay. Well, you know, this is going to sound funny, but this is the best advice I gave to myself okay. Okay, in the early <laughs> days. Because, uh, well, and, and, and so here's what it was. And, I, and I, I told myself this. Don't ever take on a commission or a job that is beyond your ability to, you know, complete uh, well. Mm-hmm. Because in, in the early, you know, I'm like I say, I'm self-taught, and I basically just learned bit by bit through through things that I uh, was building. And sometimes people would come to me with a commission that was just beyond what I was capable of. 
And it was, you hate to turn away work, especially work that is very attractive and, and likely, um, you know, could be lucrative. Um, but if I felt that it was beyond my skill set, Mm-hmm. I would just tell them that they were going to have to go somewhere else. Yeah. And I really think that that was the best thing I ever did because to take on something that you can't handle is is stressful. Um it it ultimately would likely turn out to be a disaster. And and therefore I just always made sure that I I felt that I could deliver a quality product and over the years, you know, um, things that I probably turned away in the early days, I would, you know, gladly take on now. Sure. Because I've worked to that um, level. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and so I, I just think that was advice I gave to myself. And it was a conscious decision early on that, that I was going to pass up things that were, you know, beyond my skill set. Yeah, I think that's good advice even for uh, non-professional furniture makers not to, you know, for your next project, don't bite off more than you can really chew. You yeah. Know? Add skills and techniques to your uh, to your arsenal, so to speak, slowly yeah. or in small steps. Building blocks. Yeah, yeah. You know, I teach a lot. I teach at the Salt Lake Community College, and that's really one thing that I stress with the students. You know, you'll have a more enjoyable semester if you select something that is manageable and doable, and and don't don't tackle more than you can can handle. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think the, just in my own woodworking, what has helped me in that regard is when I'm going to do something new, I've had to, I've learned through bad experience. Don't try it for the first time on the actual piece. Yeah. You know, uh, if, yeah. if, you know, you're going to, this is the first time you're doing curved panels in a vacuum press, make one or two, yeah. uh, to experiment yeah. first. Yeah. And then set about making the actual piece of furniture. Yeah. It's the same with a, with, a, with a joint, you know, to yeah. practice the joint first and then use it in your piece. Yeah. A so. dovetail, whether it's a, a dovetail jig that you're using a router with or by hand, you know. Right. Do that on some scrap pieces, work work everything out. Yeah. And then when you're comfortable with that, then execute it on the piece. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um I could have solved, uh, saved myself a lot of headache if I had done that, <laughs> if I had always done that. Yeah. Uh, so let's now, it's that you've already sort of hinted at what it might be, uh, talking about your students, but what's the best advice you could give to uh, someone just starting out in woodworking or maybe specifically someone who wants to become a professional furniture okay. maker? Yeah, um, that's a... That's a tricky thing, especially like a, uh, for me as a teacher. You know, you want to encourage people, but at the same time, having done it for 30 years, I feel I have to be honest. And that, um, it is not easy mm-hmm. to make a livelihood as a furniture maker. And I really think it's even getting a little more difficult as time goes on because the cost of living is getting that much higher and what you're able to command um, as an artisan is, you know, a little bit stagnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and therefore, you know, I've done uh, reasonably well over the 30 years, but I'm not quite so optimistic what, what the future brings. Of course, that I really don't know. And so, you know, my advice is always honesty. And it is, it's going to be difficult, um, 
you're going to have to adjust your uh, lifestyle according to it. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you better be darn passionate ab- about the craft. Because if you're just kind of looking at it as a job, you know, there are a lot of jobs that are right. easier. Um, I mean, it always kind of <clears throat> sort of disappoints me when I get the plumber or the electrician to my home and I see that they're, they're there for an hour and a half and they leave with $300 or something like that. And I think, well, that's, that's easy money, right. you know, <laughs> compared to what I, I have to do to, to get the equivalent. Right. And, and then I think of the investment of time and energy into the craft, and I sort of sometimes think, well, it's not always fair. But then I say, well, I've never really gone to work for 30 years. Yeah, you get the enjoyment out of it. And the, yeah. yeah. In fact, I mean, I love to ski. Um, but my wife has a hard time getting me to the slopes mm-hmm. because I just love being in the shop. Right. And so, you know, and, and that's kind of what I w- tell people is that it's going to be a little tricky um, making a living out of, it, out of it. But as long as you're passionate about the craft, you're, you're going to enjoy it. Um, I had a... A good friend of mine. He he worked for me for a couple of years. He was a young. He was just out of high school and and contemplating college, and he really wanted to pursue a career in woodworking. Uh, he was studying accounting at the university, and I said, you know what? Get a get a degree in accounting and do woodworking for the enjoyment of it. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, you'd be foolish to do otherwise. And right. he, he was there for a couple of years, and he just said, you know what? I hate it. I cannot imagine spending my life doing this. Mm-hmm. And he did it about face. He went to work for a furniture uh, maker. And, you know, he's been doing that for about three years. I had lunch with him last week. He's incredibly happy. He's done some amazing furniture. And I know that he'll succeed because he has that passion. And he also understands that he's going to have to adjust his, you know, a life according to his um, craft. But right. that there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I think it, for people who want to go into furniture making, looking at it, when I think about this, uh, because I've thought a lot in the last... 15 years about wanting to be a professional furniture maker. But I always now think, well, one of the things I think it takes to be able to do it is you have to have a period of time where you can afford to be poor. Yeah. And absolutely. So usually to me, that means before kids. Yeah. So that if you want to do it, you got to get started and, and suffer through those lean years uh, before you have kids. Yeah. Because kids don't, uh, no, (laughs) no, they can't. uh, No, and, and and in a way, that was um, where I was lucky because I did start early on before we had kids, didn't have to bring in a lot of money, you mm-hmm. know, and, and therefore I could kind of learn the craft. Uh, in order to learn the craft, you have to have jobs. Yeah. To get jobs when you're starting out, you can't bid them really high. And so I almost viewed the jobs that I uh, brought in as my education, mm-hmm. you know, that I was learning from doing. And like you say, you can't do that when you're, older and you have big financial um, constraints. Yeah, I, I would say for most people, uh, the, the way I the way I do it now, because I've taken on some commissions, and the way I do it now is <clears throat> I know I don't rely on that money 
uh, for my livelihood. So it gives me the freedom to just charge whatever I want. Yeah. And if they don't want to pay it, then they can go away. Right. You know, it's fine by me. I don't need, I don't <laughs> you need don't need it. to build it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. uh, if I would, you know, some people, <clears throat> if you already have a job that you can tolerate, you know, but you still want to build furniture, just do it take, on the side, take it on, do it on the side yeah. and, and only, you know, charge what you should, what you feel like you really should get paid. And if they don't want to pay that, then don't worry about it. Yeah. Don't do it, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think a lot of uh, woodworkers dream of that, but that it's sort of what you were saying about the passion for the job. I think is is actually comparable to working at the magazine, yeah. Where um, you have to really love furniture making, yeah, to work at fine woodworking. Because if you don't, it's the worst job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah. nothing at all yeah. enjoyable yeah. about it. Yeah, but if you love furniture making. <clears throat> Then it's it's one of the best jobs in the world because yeah. it's you know every day of my job of my life I, you know I go to work and it's about furniture making yeah and uh, so I, I really enjoy that right. uh, so yeah you're right you have to love what you do or it is a job but if yeah. you love what you do you never work a day in your no. life as they and that, say. that's really how I felt about it mm -hmm. it's it's been a wonderful thirty years oh that's good um, this actually I've, I've wondered this before and I think I've asked you this previously but I don't remember the answer now. Are there a lot of furniture makers in Salt Lake or Salt Lake City rather? You know, there there are not a lot. There are so, now this is interesting too though and 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 I I guess I'm approaching it a little bit uh you know, this discussion we just had was from a little bit of a different direction, but there are some furniture makers that are real business people. And um you know, they they're make you know, over the years I've seen them make an awful lot of money. Um, there was kind of a style of furniture that was really in vogue here for the last, you know, 15 years because of the resort areas, mm -hmm. Deer Valley, Park City, um, and they've got some high-end homes. And it was a lot of this rustic altar furniture that was kind of in a European country, um, vein. Mm -hmm. And, um, man... The builders of that rode a, a wave because the material was very inexpensive. Being that it was rustic, it didn't require the highest attention to detail, um, and they could charge a fortune for it. Mm -hmm. And boy, some of these people just just made yeah. a, a real good living. Um, <clears throat> styles have changed to where now it's a little bit more contemporary and modern, and they're they're wanting beautiful woods, not just a kind of a rustic finish. And I, I haven't really, um, you know, followed it, uh, how they're adapting to that, but but they seem to be doing okay. So yeah, there there are some companies uh, here here in town that employ anywhere from you know five to fifteen uh, b builders and yeah. and do quite well. That's cool. Their their market is through interior designers and uh, typically to a higher end you mm -hmm. know clientele. Yeah, I think I, I've learned that uh, in the last few years, this, a similar uh, lesson is that um, if you want to succeed as a furniture maker, you have to really know what is popular at yeah. that given time yeah. with the right crowd of people. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and it, and it almost doesn't come down to necessarily you have to be a, uh, a, a great furniture maker. You just have to know the right trends like on the East coast, uh, it may be waning now, but for, uh, there was recently very popular was like really rough sawn 
lumber. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, you didn't do anything to it. It's like the more gnarly it looked coming off yeah. the lump, the mill, the better. Yeah. With uh, like uh, iron pipe fittings yeah. for the base. <laughs> and, you know, literally you could spend three hours making it, but they could charge way more yeah. than I could ever yeah. charge for yeah. a really well-crafted all-wood dining At table. mahogany. Yeah. You know? I, I, no, absolutely. And because uh, people, they're not paying a lot of money for the craft. It's more they're paying it because this is fashionable. Yeah, this is what I want. And, and, is... and, and funny enough, you see this, that a lot of people feel much better about the piece if they paid a lot of money for it. Yes. You, you know? Right, you right, know, right. They... Uh, Steve, I think it was Steve Lotto once told me a story. He worked in, I think he worked in the Erion shop in Pennsylvania. Okay. I think yeah. that's where yeah. it was. It may not yeah. be right. I, so I shouldn't say, well, I already did say somewhere, but it may not be that place. But he said they, they had a you know showroom attached to the shop. And they would have furniture in there. And if it didn't sell for three months, the owner would raise the price. And if it didn't sell for another three months, oh, he yeah. would raise the price again. It would keep raising it until eventually well, it sold. Yeah. So yeah. there is something to that. There's a certain inch of the market that that really wants to pay top dollar. Right. I know. <laughs> and fi- finding that niche is, is what you want to do as a, exactly. a, a custom furniture maker. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, people, another question, this is some kind of related. I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but a lot of times people ask, well, how do I figure out what to charge for a piece of furniture? And I'm not asking you to answer this, but uh, unless you really wanted to, but it's normally, because it, this is related to that, that people will pay a lot more than you think they will. Just charge what you want. Yeah. And don't worry about how much it costs you to make it or how much the materials cost. Charge what you think you deserve to get for that. Yeah. And if they say no, they say no, but they might say yes. Yeah, and that's that's maybe a little bit more where I am now. Um, in the early days, I couldn't do that mm-hmm. simply because I needed the work. Right. You know, I just needed the, the uh, flow of work through the shop. And, and therefore, I would um, oftentimes price it at what I thought I went about as high as I felt that that client could bear. Right. And sometimes um, they would decline it. And oftentimes then I, I might renegotiate. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I'd say, you know, I'd really like to do this. Um, you know, I can come down a little bit if we maybe make a few um, modifications or that kind of a thing. Yeah, that's the key that you have to change it. You can't yeah. give them the same thing yeah. for less. You have to yeah. say, well, because I, I recently... I. <clears throat> did an estimate in uh, drawings for a client and they said, well, we can't really afford that. And I said, well, you tell me what your budget is and I'll show you what I can do for that amount of money. Yeah. And so I gave them a couple of different options and they, and they picked one. Yeah. So yeah. it always, it will work. You can make it work out if you want. Um, well, I see that we've, uh, this uh, has kind of drawn on to like 45 minutes now. <laughs> Ed's going to get really upset okay. when I get back. Okay. So <laughs> we had one more question, but uh, we don't, we sort of already talked a little bit about where the, craft of fine furniture making's heading. So we don't need to go into that. Now we need to have the real conversation of the day, which is where are we going to go for lunch? Uh-huh. There's lots of good places <laughs> to eat lunch in Salt Lake City. So um, if you're ever here in Salt Lake City, you should go to Scuddy's. Or Scaddy's. Scaddy's. Yeah, Scaddy's <laughs> is or really a nice good. Philly cheesesteak yeah. or, or a burger. Or a burger. Or what's Olympia? Oh, the Crown Burger. Crown Burger. Yeah, Crown get, Burger. Get a pastrami burger. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> and uh, 
Rubio's is a great chain. Yeah, yeah. they have um, good fish Baja, tacos. Baja Grill. It's it's got nice nice Mexican seafood uh, tacos, enchiladas, burritos, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, and then if you like beer, <laughs> go to Squatters in downtown. Okay. Yeah. yeah, they have really good beer there. Uh, <laughs> brewed here in Salt Lake City. Yeah, locally so, brewed. Yeah. Well, Chris, thanks a lot for the time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, back to uh, Ed and Mike, and probably me. Okay. All right, Mike, we're going to get a lot of flack for all that talk at the end of Matt's interview about beer, tacos, burgers, completely inappropriate. I, I, it's not my fault. Please don't write me. It's Matt Kenny's fault. You can write Matt at, I'm, I'm not going to give out his email because that would be really mean. <laughs> um, but uh, I was thinking that the, the most sound piece of advice, and I know some people are going to totally disagree with this. I thought the most sound piece of advice that Chris gave was that idea of at least when you're starting out, like don't take on a job that you aren't a hundred percent sure you can follow through on effectively. Yes. But there's a flip side there. It's like, there are some guys who like to live on the edge and are like, no, I'm going to take this on because I'm going to figure out how to do this and I'm going to succeed. And, um, I tend to err towards caution. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that there's, um, I mean, woodworking, unless you're making a piece that you've already made before and you've figured out every problem, any piece of furniture, even if it's not tremendously challenging, involves some creative engineering, some problem solving. So I think the question is, and I think what what Chris was speaking to— Or in my case, mistake solving. —is sort of, um, you know, how big of a learning curve is this going to be? I tend to like—I'm more interested in projects that involve one or two things that I haven't tried yet. If it's more than that, that's, I think, when it gets scary. But if, you know, 90% of a project is in your wheelhouse, okay, I got this, this is going to be nice, but there's one or two things, oh, yeah, I've always wanted to try that technique or this technique or there's a curve here or just a little bit of a carving, it's like, yeah, I'll make the investment in this project to figure that little part out and I'll add that to my design vocabulary and take it on. But I think Chris's take, like, don't get in over your head, um, is is very where you will sink like a stone. I'm trying to think of ever very, very done anything, anything dumb like that. I've done dumb things like that in in the process of restoring my house, <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. but that's me. I mean, it doesn't affect anybody else. Yeah, pretty much anything I tackle around my house is like over my head, just <laughs> just by definition, and you sort of jump in. And I hate that because by the time you're done, you have it figured out, and you know how you would really do it right the next time. Yeah. Well, that's generally what happens yeah. in life. And by the time that comes around, you've forgotten everything. Yeah. So, well, uh, so let's let's take a couple more questions before we wrap this up. We've got one from Mike who writes: When building furniture with drawers, typically a divider is used to separate two drawers next to one another. If you wanted continuous grain to run from drawer to drawer, how would you hide the divider? I'm looking for your opinions on what you think would be the most fine woodworking way to solve this problem. So, so I first. I remember what you you had some ideas on this, Mike, and yep. I, I'm going to say mine first because mine then went to you going, yeah, but you could do this. Okay. So I originally thought, well, if you've got drawers that are, you've got one drawer on the left and one drawer on the right, okay, you're going to take them out of the same board, obviously, right next to each other. But what if you, and then you've got a little vertical divider. Now, um, what if that little vertical divider were made out of a secondary wood, right? Like okay. poplar, Okay. And now you go to cut out your drawer, you know, your drawer fronts. You cut the left drawer front out, and then you've got a little sliver in between that you take a piece of veneer off of. Okay. And then the right drawer front. And then you veneer that secondary 
wood, that secondary poplar vertical divider. Yeah. And now you've got a continuous grain match. But then he said, and you picked up on this, Mike, he actually said, um, if you want a continuous grain, how would you hide the divider? And now this is where you come in, Mike. Right. So you're saying, okay, you, you kind of carry the grain across the right. divider. Right. This is keeping the divider yep. visible. And if you don't want a divider at all, that divider is basically acting as a side guide um, to guide the movement of the drawer. So the first solution is figure out a different way to guide the movement of the drawer without having a guide in the center, which, so you could add a center runner underneath the bottom of the drawer mm -hmm. so that there's really no need to support the drawer Very on either common side. method. Yep. Uh, a second thing you can do is go ahead and have a vertical divider, but cut it back and have your drawer fronts just overlap, overlap the divider in the front. So it might be, um, you know, it could be just like a false front that extends beyond that. That's probably not a bad deal either. Yeah, the only caveat with that would be it might look a little, <clears throat> the drawer might look a little weird when you open it and you're going to have this You'll have little, that little wing. there, yep. But I don't know if that's such a big deal. Yeah, um, kind of pick your poison, I think. Yeah. Uh, so another question we've got from Daryl. Uh, great show as always. I'm a bit behind due to a broken phone, but Mike said something in a recent podcast about bandsaw drift that caught my attention. A broken phone. Can you listen to the podcast on a phone? Of course. Huh. I download my podcast to my iPhone all the time. Oh, a phone. Yeah, Mike, it's uh, I think like the grandpa. phone in your house. You it's know, 21st the century grandpa. Curly phone cord. in your house. You have a phone in your it's house? Like, hello. What, you got a little princess phone in there? <laughs> a little rotary dial on that baby hanging on the kitchen wall? All right. I'm, oh, I'm up geez. to speed. Sorry about that. All right, Peepaw. Turn up your hearing aid. Uh, <laughs> I've always been annoyed with... So he's talking about drift here. I've always been annoyed with adjusting the fence to handle blade drift. Yes. Um, my, then, you know what, uh, Daryl? There might be a little video on how to change a bandsaw blade at finewoodworking.com that you might just want to consult. Just saying. Anyhow, he's always been annoyed with adjusting the fence to handle blade drift. Mike mentioned that... That is the old way and recommended using the tracking adjustments. These are the tracking adjustments that uh, work on the upper wheel. Uh, he recommended using tracking adjustments to adjust for drift. Do you have any videos on this technique? I tried it myself, but I must be missing something, as the location of the blade on the wheel doesn't seem to affect the drift angle. Hmm. So the video that I mentioned, it's Asa Christiana is in the video. I produced it. It's how to change a bandsaw blade. And one of the things we talked about was adjusting that upper wheel until the blade, a three TPI blade, that's the most commonly used recommended blade, mm -hmm. is running in the center of the crown. You have a crowned wheel usually, right? Um, and that should be running in the center of that wheel. Yep. And that should eliminate the vast majority of drift, that and a sharp blade um, that you don't have to push too hard. So three TPI, the idea is you've got gullets that are large enough to get all that sawdust out efficiently and you're not binding up and causing a wandering cut. Yep. Yeah. So the, the thing is that if, if the blade is forward of that crown, it's going to be angled in, in one direction. If it's beyond the crown, it's going to be angled in the other. And you just dial the position of the blade on the top of the wheel until it the, you make a cut and it runs parallel to your rip fence and you're good to go. So in essence, in a way, you're adjusting for drift, but instead of accepting the, the drift of the blade and adjusting your fence to it, you're really adjusting the direction of the drift until it, it, in essence, cuts parallel to your fence and you're good to go. So if you're moving this thing back and forth and it's not affecting the direction of cut 
um, could be a, a couple things. Number one, you might have a, a, a bandsaw with very little crown, mm-hmm. which is um, – I've seen those before. We'll, we'll have bandsaw reviews and especially larger bandsaws for some reason. Um, there is a pretty good variation on the amount of crown on the tires, which would affect that drift. But um, I'm guessing that's not your biggest problem in that – um, if you make these adjustments and the blade in the cut tends to wander, kind of cuts to the right, then cuts to the left, then cuts to the right, um, that could be not enough blade tension, but really it's an indicator that uh, you got a dull blade. Yeah, dull blade. And uh, as far as blade tension, the, the thing I remember reading from Michael Fortune, at least the way he sets up his mm-hmm. machine, is that um, you should be able to take your index finger and press on the side of the blade um, you know, between the table and the and the guides, you know, press laterally on the side of that blade and stop pressing when your index finger blanches, you know, because you're pressing all the blood out of the okay. tip of your finger. Yep. And it should deflect. It should have deflected about a quarter of an inch at that point. No more okay. than that. So what, with your guides all the way up? With, I can't remember how high, you know, if I recall correctly, we did this in the video with Asa and the, the guides might have been, you know, 10 or 10 inches up or so. Okay. Um, but consult that video, just go to the site. It's how to change a bandsaw blade. And I, I've used it, uh, ad nauseum. I mean, it, it works, at least it worked for my Rockwell, okay. not, you know, your old saw that I bought. Uh, it works like a charm. Good. Um, and then he had a second question. Uh, he says, my second question concerns the ball bearings in the wheels. I removed the top wheel while turning my saw. My, I'm sorry, while tuning my saw. And I noticed the bearings are quite stiff. Should I replace them? I can't seem to find any information on the internet about doing this. Um, so short answer is... Yeah, just pop them out if you need... Actually, you're, you want to be aware of a crunchy bearing. You know, As you yeah. turn it, you feel it feels like there's grit or something inside the bearing. You probably want to pop that sucker out. And I know with bandsaw um, bearings, you can usually get like a dowel about... You don't want to pound on, on the, that center portion of the bearing. You want to you know, be on that outside ring, yeah. so you want to dowel or something. I guess you can always get a bearing PVC puller. PVC pipe or something, too, of the appropriate diameter. If you can get that, sure. And they're not that big of a deal to pop out and throw some new bearings in there. Um, I don't know about stiff. It's more the crunchy, I think, is the problem. Speaking of which, I have an old DeWalt router with really crunchy bearings, and I have to send that out to Raleigh Johnson. Maybe ask him to change those out for me. <laughs> oh, it's wrong. You don't want to. You don't want to bite off more than you can chew. Yeah, I'm, Chris I'm Gogner. strictly theory when it comes to this kind of stuff. All right. Um, <clears throat> well. Oh, the other thing on yes. the bandsaw, it could be that if you have old bandsaw tires, maybe they're they're worn out. It's not that big of a deal to replace your bandsaw tires. I've actually done that myself. Um, it's no big deal, and maybe that might reintroduce the necessary crown to get you up and tracking good. So nowadays they're often made out of polyurethane. Something yes, lines. a little stretchier. The yeah. old guys were really hard to get back in place. In fact, some I think you had to glue them on at some point, and Ugh. and you had to I don't know get like seventeen screwdrivers and lever this thing on. And the newer guys are stretchier, and you just sort of snap them on and good to go. Usually they're bright orange too, which is kind of yeah. neat. Um, well, let's uh, let's head into our final segment of the day, and that's going to be I'm going to surprise Mike with this oh. all time favorite tool and technique of all time for this week. Where Mike tells us about an awesome new tool and an awesome new technique because Ed doesn't have anything because he came to this podcast unprepared. <laughs> uh, so I'm gonna, I knew you had one of each. I do have one of each. And I don't know what they are. 
Okay. So, Mike, don't disappoint me with some lame, you know, like oh. number two pencil no, nonsense. No, no, we're, 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 this is practical terms. We're not going right. philosophical. Let's roll. Here, so. My brain. All right. So both, uh, both this tool and technique are related to a project I'm working on. It's a seven drawer shaker style dresser made in this awesome curly cherry. Um, it's coming along quite nice. So, uh, the first, my favorite tool of all time of the week, uh, comes from gluing up these sides. They're about 19 and a half inches wide by 30 ish inches long, both the top and, and the side. So big pieces of cherry, big glue ups. I have to smooth these things down. Um, so I did my glue up, get these guys as flat as possible and as lined as possible. And so I bust out my number five Lee Nielsen plane, a little bit longer sole, and I start going about it. And of course, my hand planes typically are set up to take a really, really fine shaving, more for smoothing as opposed to flattening. And this plane, it's heavy. It's set for a fine cut, very little crown on the blade, very small opening. And I'm taking these whisper thin shavings, but man, I got a lot of work to do here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then you extend the blade. Okay, now we have to adjust the mouth and it's still this big, heavy, massive plane. So I said, ah, hold on a second. So I pull out my number five, uh, 605 uh, Stanley Bedrock, which is basically, you know, very similar to a, a Bailey style Stanley number five. Pull that out. Um, the this throat's, is plane number <clears throat> 72 in yes. your arsenal? So the throat's more open. It's got a nice hawk iron in there, a uh, slight crown to it. But the main thing is it's a much lighter hmm. hand plane. And while when it comes to that final smoothing, you may get a little more chatter, minor tear out for flattening. <clears throat> excuse me, this plane, I was just like whipping it across these door panels, taking up nice, heavier shavings, and I smoothed down, especially the insides of these panels. I just had this knocked out in maybe just five or ten minutes. Just zip, zip, zip. Nice. Big old shavings coming off. I was still getting, for this curly cherry, I was still getting a really nice finish based on having thick shavings, but the main thing is this lighter plane with a slightly more open throat. I was nice, sharp blade. I was zipping shavings off, and I got through that flattening in no time. Ooh. And so right. it's, it's, you know, you can make a thing that make um, the statement that, yeah, Lee Nielsen number five with the mass and the fine throat and the adjustability and the lack of chatter is, quote unquote, a better hand plane than an old Stanley number five. Not just a different tool for a different purpose. And I still have my Leland Nelson number five for the final smoothing, but I became reacquainted with my old uh, Bedrock 605 for really getting flat and fast without a lot of tear out. And it's a fun little plane. Flat and fast. So I've actually pulled that out, you know, a few different times once I've, you know, got reaccustomed to using it. And it's just, it's a really nice compliment to a new high end heavy, um, hand plane is keep those old planes keep them sharp pull them out time to time and um wait so does that count as tool and technique no okay all right so that's That's your tool so um this uh this has a solid wood top that overhangs the sides a little bit and i wanted to put just a nice little sort of bullnose profile on the end of this and rather than breaking out the router bits and mm. figuring it all out and figuring out what the radius of the bit I need and making a partial cut and dealing with the burnout and, and you know, the burning from the router. what we call dorking around. Yeah, instead of dorking around with the router, um, I do what I do most often, whereas I just, you know, mark out the, the rough profile I want to make, make some pencil lines on the edge of the board, pull out a block plane and create some some heavy facets to basically 
define that mm-hmm. the shape of the curve and then you sort of pull the peaks off between the facets with and make more facets make more facets <laughs> then set the blade for a little bit lighter cut and you make even more facets between the facets until the next thing you know you have this you can't see the facets gorgeous profile with just a block plane in in a matter of minutes where you know you could futz around with the router and never quite get it right and risk doing a lot of damage to your stock and causing a lot of problems while you're trying to do this Darnold block plane. How very Phil Lowe of you, except for the block plane. It is. That's he. He generally prefers using a. Uh, he uses a smoother to do the same thing. Yeah. In fact, I did learn from Phil um, how to do sort of a fillet, you know, profile on the mm-hmm. edge of a tabletop that he did on his low boy. Had a fillet plus sort of a a oblong sort of profile beyond a that thumbnail. Yep. And he just did that same way. And I watched him do it. I thought, no, you can't do something like that. This is crazy, Phil. He and defined the fillet with the t- at the table saw, if I remember correctly. I think he, I think he did. Yeah. Um, you can certainly use a shoulder plane to do that if mm. you wanted. But uh, yep, established the fillet, rounded it in, uh, with a few odd planes. And I tried it when I attempted my low boy a while back, and it was really cool. Right on. All right. Uh, well, listen, guys, we... Uh, Get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store as well as through email. And every week I like to acknowledge the kind folks who leave words of encouragement up there. So here we go. For this week, the Channy wrote, Stellar podcast. I love the banter, tips, and topics. I appreciate the fact that someone usually clarifies the issues and the multiple perspectives serve to make sure you can understand even though you can't actually see what it is they are discussing. Keep it up. From, oh boy, this is a tough one. From Hilvywoom. Uh, with a heavy heart, I'm saddened to say I've finally caught up on the back podcasts. I'll miss Ed, Mike, Asa, and I never thought I would say this, Dr. Kenny, every day on my commute. You guys do a great job mixing technical topics, creative ideas, and banter. Keep up the good work, guys, and don't change a thing. Now, I should say, uh, regarding the comment uh, by The Channy about how we do a good job of explaining things even though you can't actually see what we're discussing, we're thinking about maybe playing around with bringing back a video component. We would still be recording this in the nice little studio here that has nice mics, and you know we've gone to great lengths to really boost the quality of sound and whatnot, but we're thinking of maybe throwing in some GoPro cameras and uh, just uploading a video file every week. Um, It wouldn't be a live stream or anything like that, but uh, that way we can bring out props if we want to. It's something we've been talking to, so if you dig that, let us know. Send us an email at shoptalk at taunton.com or what have you. Uh, and let us know because I'm curious to kind of gauge huh. interest there. It was something that was brought up to me yesterday by the Big Brass. Uh, I love saying that. The big wow. Brass. Uh, so, so we can't do the podcast in our underwear anymore. Uh, or naked for that matter. No. Yeah. As I love. Anyhow, <laughs> that, oh boy, that uncomfortable comment about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. Thanks to our sponsor this week, Minwax. Uh, We'll be back again in two weeks on June 19th, 2015 for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. And technique of all time for this week, where oh. Mike tells us about an awesome new tool and an awesome new technique because Ed doesn't have anything because he came <laughs> to this podcast unprepared. 
<laughs> uh, so I'm gonna, I knew you had one.